Welcome to In a Warming World, a podcast that critically examines cultural narratives that minimize climate change in order to reveal how ecological social change is not only possible, but necessary. I'm Moira Marquis, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Economic concerns are some of the most compelling ways to derail serious conversations on climate. The specious but common sense, but what about jobs, has been unfortunately reinforced by the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown, which resulted in both rising unemployment rates as well as the concomitant decrease in emissions. While climate and economy are often juxtaposed as irreconcilable, this characterization relies on a fossil fuel-dependent economy that demands endless growth. In this episode, alternative economic models are discussed alongside the current economic models, environmental impacts, and employment shortfalls. Hi, I'm Haley Gilman. I'm a sophomore and I'm majoring in biology with a minor in chemistry. I've grown up with a mild concern with climate change in my family. I was always taught to turn the lights off when I leave a room and to keep the water off while I'm brushing my teeth. Uh, my dad was pretty active in the Sierra Club and World Wildlife Fund, but it wasn't really until I got to college that I understood the severity of the climate crisis we're in. I've had some friends that have encouraged me to take smaller steps to better my own carbon dioxide output, like using a drying rack instead of a dryer when I wash my clothes and just stuff like that. But that's pretty much my experience with climate change before this class. I was interested in these readings because I never really thought of climate change being directly linked to the economy. But after having read the articles in this unit, I opened it opened up a whole new world of possible solutions and actions that people can take that I wasn't really even aware of. I was really interested in the political divide talked about in the article Traveling to the Heart specifically. Hey, uh, I'm Lucas Park and I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I'm a poli-sci major and I'm a freshman at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, I've been interested in climate change and what we can really do to reverse it since I was a kid. Uh, my family always made green choices and made strides through their part in protecting the environment. At one point when I was a child, I sent a letter to my representative in the U.S. House about saving the dolphins after learning about them being caught in fishing nets. Hi, my name is Olivia Wilson. I'm an English major and statistics minor. I'm from Youngsville, North Carolina, which is a small rural town. Um, my hometown has recently been expanding, and every time I go home, there seems to be a new neighborhood up and more trees cut down. No one from my high school ever really talked about climate change or ways um, as a community to live more sustainably. Outside these experiences and making greener choices in my home, like taking short showers and unplugging things that are not in use, I've gotten most of my knowledge about climate change from college. Hey everyone, I'm Robert Rampani. I'm a junior here at Chapel Hill studying chemistry and minoring in medicine, literature, and culture on a pre-health track. I'm originally from Kansas City, which means I'm a good uh, Midwestern boy. As a Christian with many friends and family who are climate change skeptics or overall indifferent, I've tried to introduce climate change issues in a non-antagonistic way that can relate to them without diluting the truth. I've also been transitioning away from red meat, which has been very interesting coming from a Midwest family but I have taken a more active stance against climate change over the last two years. My name is Matthew Nong and I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina. 
I'm a sophomore studying journalism and political science. My family tries to be very environmentally conscious and I try to be aware of climate change and other environmental issues. With climate change and the environment being such an important issue in today's political discourse and aligned to be one of the most important issues of the future, I think it's important for everybody to be educated about it. Hi, my name is Harshal Makwana and I'm a sophomore at UNC pursuing a double major in computer science and business. I'm also the son of Indian immigrants, which makes me a first generation American. And I'm talking here from New Jersey, which is where I've lived for my entire life. My business background is unsurprisingly what drew me to this unit. I've always been fascinated by how companies create value and what value looks like for different people in society. At the same time, I follow a small religion from India called Jainism, which my parents and preceding generations have followed for centuries. Jainism is heavily oriented toward non-materialism, non-violence, and respecting all living beings. It's the primary reason for why I'm a vegetarian and has guided my worldview in terms of how I approach others and the environment. Therefore, my background as a business student, as a chain, and as a northerner drew me to traveling to the heart and degrowth in particular. Hi all, I'm Annalie Nelson. I'm a junior here at UNC majoring in biology with a double minor in chemistry and neuroscience. I'm originally from a small farming town in Connecticut where my family has always used the resources of the land. Um, since moving to Fuquay Varina, North Carolina in 2019, I've seen many development, developments built and less and less green land. This has made me more aware of climate issues and more engaged in climate change initiatives. So going off of this, what might contribute to how difficult it would be for Americans um, and other super affluent nations to transition their lifestyles away from this excessive consumption? So in this article that we read in class called Traveling to the Heart, um, the great paradox is explained as the national phenomenon that red states tend to be poorer, have worse health, a shorter life expectancy, just all of these terrible things in comparison to blue states. In addition, Louisiana has an insane amount of environmental problems, a subsiding coastline, rising sea level, hurricanes, all of which scientists connect to climate change. Um, the author writes that Given such an array of challenges, one might expect people to welcome federal help, but the people he meets really don't seem to think that way. The author is confused with the fact that many of these small business owners and supporters of a free market still support politicians that back laws that consolidate the monopoly powers of the very largest companies that are poised to swallow up smaller ones. Basically, there is a small group of people, the top percent, that is trying to control a larger group of people, in this case, Republicans, through the media, et cetera, um, for their own economic benefit. To do this, they're using ideas that appeal to the masses, like no abortion, Second Amendment rights, um, to get support for the politicians that will benefit their, own, benefit their own economic interests. The reason the Republican Party, in general, doesn't support climate change activism is not because they don't care about the environment, but because it's not good for the economy. I just thought that was really interesting because I didn't really recognize or I didn't really realize the political divide really involved the economy when addressing climate change. It didn't really even occur to me that the two could be connected in this way. So when all of these policies are supporting the success of consumption with large corporations like Amazon, Walmart, etc., loosening the reins a little bit on their regulations, we're actually just perpetuating the issue of climate change even more. Yeah, and Haley, I think you bring up a really good point in that 
a lot of these kind of more right-wing ideas have come from the increase in these political donations. So again, quoting from the reading, um, it says that Charles and David Koch directed about $889 million to help right-wing candidates and causes in 2016 alone. Um, that's a lot of cash. But besides that, that, that's obviously going towards telling these politicians to vote in a very specific way. And the Koch brothers are notorious for um, having this black box kind of corporation that is highly pollutive and, and very detrimental to the environment. And I think just based off that too, a lot of these lobbying dollars go to encouraging Republicans to back things like curbing the authority of the EPA. And it also results in, you know, when it's a Democrat versus a Republican having a conversation, they're not able to hash things out because that empathy wall is not as significant as that $2 million check from Exxon. So yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point that you bring up as well. And I love what the author has to say, as Haley brought up, that, you know, it's not like Republicans or people on the right in general, who I happen to know a lot of and involved in a lot of those circles. It's not like they're sitting there saying they hate the economy, that they want to have dirty water and dirty air. It is about the economy. And we need to come to a place as Republicans, Democrats, independents, where we need to accept that changing the way we look at climate change doesn't necessarily mean that we have to throw our entire economy out the window. There are compromises and there are middle grounds like we've talked about, um, combining ideas like uh, degrowth, looking at the way we think of values in this country about consumption and coming to a final idea as a first step. So I actually agree. I think that compromise is like the biggest and best word that we could use here. I think it was talked a lot, uh, talked about a lot in the article that compromising wouldn't necessarily solve climate change, but that's the reason that we can't move forward right now. It's like we we can't come together, and there's not enough of us. Like, or there is enough of us, but we can't come together right now because one group of us doesn't want to do anything, while the other group wants it so so bad. And because we don't agree, we can't move forward at all. And I think that's really, really important. The politics is all about compromise in this specific sense. We need to find something if we wanna do something about the environment. As Haley said, I, I definitely agree that, you know, this lack of compromise and this huge political divide um, is definitely causing climate indifference in our nation and many other nations. Um, and I agree that that compromise is definitely the first step towards moving towards um, climate action worldwide. So my next question is, um, how does value and consumption contribute to this problem? So the article Scientists Warning on Affluence discusses how current consumption norms are set by the super wealthy. Um, and this article discusses positional goods. So positional goods are expensive, unnecessary goods that are bought after one's needs are met, you know, so like the private jets and the trips to Moscow, et cetera. Um, and access to these goods is based on one's income relative to their peers. There are multiple empirical studies showing that one's income relative to their peers is one of the strongest determinants of individual happiness. And this definitely goes to show how social status plays a major role in the value we place on material consumption. 
However, as the article states, with every actor striving to increase their position relative to their peers, the average consumption level rises and thus even more expensive positional goods become necessary while the societal well-being level stagnates. Happiness levels are seen to remain the same throughout all of this economic growth that we strive for and that we all do no matter our economic um, class because there's always someone with more there's always someone with better products that we have to buy so that we look higher class, et cetera. Um, and you know, you're, we're not really moving up in status as we do this excessive consumption of these expensive goods. And these are you know, detrimental to our environment. Um, valuing consumptions relative to others' consumptions contributes to this problem of continuous economic growth in our society, you know, leading to excessive consumption and the environmental impacts that, that it has. Today's consumption-oriented society has certainly led to a large divide between social classes, and not coincidentally, climate change has disproportionately affected the lower class. Um, three out of four people living in poverty rely on agriculture and natural resources to survive, and uh, these are obviously very affected by climate change and will continue to do so in coming years. Um, I think that one good way to analyze the effects of climate change uh, on social classes is the 2013 movie Snowpiercer, which uh, is obviously a dramatized situation, but it, uh, it's symbolic in a lot of ways of today's social order and raises a lot of good questions. Um, in the movie, the character Wilford, who is representative of the upper, upper class, says that everyone has their preordained position and everyone in their is in their place except for you, uh, which is in response, Curtis, who is representative of the lower class says, that's what people in the best place say to the people in the worst place. And I think this is uh, can be applied to how the upper classes have less incentive to mitigate climate change uh, because their lives will face less upheaval. While the lower class knows that uh, they'll continue to be the most affected by climate change unless they can uh, break the cycle of preordained positions. And I think um, this definitely requires a solution on multiple fronts. Obviously halting climate change will help everybody, but uh, raising the lower class uh, through economic reform is definitely gonna help uh, a lot of people. Um, I think this kind of goes back to degrowth and the ideas presented in that article, um, because under a classless society in a ideal communist uh, economic system, right, there's no, lower class and there's no upper class. Everybody gets the same amount of income. There's not um, a hierarchy to society. And that kind of solves the issues that are presented when trying to deal with climate change with, you know, lower classes being affected. You know, people who make $15,000 a year can't go out and buy an electric car or buy solar panels. Um, but in a communist society, those things could just be afforded to everybody um, at no, cost to those people. And so I think that's why communism is presented as such a good idea when talking about degrowth in the environment, um, because it kind of solves a lot of those issues with um, class divides and economic inequality. Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point in, in the sense that when we talk about these really rich billionaires like Bill Gates and Elon Musk and, you know, all these people, um, what we're talking about you know, people who are very engaged in philanthropy 
And what that looks like in the real world is, you know, dependent on each individual, you know, one of the issues is that the government isn't able to control where the money goes. It's these individual people. So if Jeff Bezos believes that kindergarten and childcare is the most important thing that has to be solved in today's society, he's going to invest in that. Whereas climate change kind of gets left to the, to the side. And so I think kind of analyzing that situation, Degro definitely brought this up in terms of, you know, who controls the wealth redistribution um, and how to address that Lauderdale paradox is really taking the wealth from this, that, that top 1% and redistributing it so the public good um, can use those resources and, and everybody is benefited. But then the question becomes, is the government up to that challenge and are those the right people to do that? And I don't know, it's, it's an interesting paradox to kind of solve there. Um, I, I think another thing too, along with you know government and politics is a cultural issue of consumption. Um, as Olivia was saying, this idea of overconsumption, and I think we see it a lot now with social media. Um, we see you know, YouTube and TikTok and Instagram of all of these people uh, advertising products um, and saying, you know, you should get this and you should get this and people buying into that uh, culture. And I think it might be hard to break the average person from those habits. For sure. And really this entire argument, I feel, breaks down to one question, which obviously has very different answers on the left and the right. Where does the needle sway? Where does it land on individual versus collective responsibility in terms of both economic well-being, individual versus corporate contributions to climate change? Where you land on that question really determines how you're going to approach climate change. So I would love if someone would tackle that. I think for me, um, individual responsibility is highly important, but I think it, it's more than just reducing single-use plastic waste um, and um, being ecologically minded. I think it also comes down to what you do in the voting booth. Um, in Traveling to the Heart, uh, the author writes, um, McGillis suggests that voters really act in their self-interest, but do they? Um, the author continues to say that red state voters who are not billionaires themselves oppose taxing billionaires and this tax money could go back to their communities and help them. And this idea um, is puzzling to me. It's, it's from standing um, on the outside looking in. And I, I think this disconnect is concerning and it shows a lack of interest and knowledge and how effective a vote can be. Um, and while politicians and affluent people should do right by their constituents and the citizens, I think it ultimately comes down to the voter um, to hold those people in power responsible um, to move towards a more stable environment. Current consumption norms um, are driven by the super affluent in our economy and scientists warning on affluence um, definitely dives into this by explaining how each level or section of capitalism works together in a kind of continuously growing cycle of excessive consumption and economic growth. 
Um, starting at the top, you know, firms need to stay competitive in the market, and this causes them to need to reinvest their profits and spend more and more on things like creation of new products, more and better advertising, more efficient production to maximize prof profits, such as, you know, switching from human labor to machinery, which costs money. Um, and then because of firms were moving down the ladder, economic growth needed um, is, is needed to keep employment at a constant rate because labor productivity continuously rises. And then, you know, further moving down to avoid unemployment, which would increase social security costs, states also contribute to mass economic growth through spending. Um, and as I previously discussed at the very bottom, you know, individual consumption decisions are shaped by these systems that provide the material goods, which results in excessive consumption. The article explains structural barriers to living in a more ecological way, which, um, you know, things like lack of suitable housing, insufficient options for socializing, employment, transportation and information, as well as high exposure to consumer temptations. Often these conditions are deliberately fostered by states and also capitalists to increase consumption. Not only do the super affluent drive individuals consumption norms based on their own spending and need for economic growth, but they also provide a lot of people, prevent a lot of people from having um, more ecological lifestyles. Um, if, you know, I think this idea of, of starting, you know, looking at the top that controls the most and contributes the most to this consumption, um, then this is where the change should occur. So sort of going off with what Annalie and Olivia said, I think we talked about individual versus collective responsibility there. Um, Annalie mentioned stuff about uh, just like plastic straws, plastic cups, and like doing that individual um, action just to make your own impact just a little bit less. But I think it comes down to like, when is individual like enough? You can't like stop and say like, oh, I didn't use plastic today. I turned the life, the light off today. Like that's fine. Um, to change anything, you need a collective effort. And I think that goes back to the politics part of it. And I think it goes back to um, big corporations. Yes, everybody doing their own part is going to do something, but it's not going to do enough. And I think that's something that really scares a lot of people. I think that um, that's where that, um, opinion that, okay, well, nothing I do is going to be enough, so I'm just not going to do anything. Um, I think that's where it comes from. And it's really interesting, the difference between individual and collective responsibility there. So with all of that said, um, one of my final thoughts is that a lot of climate change issues really seem to boil down to the divide in politics. Um, if we could reach a compromise, I feel like it could make it a lot easier to make the big change that needs to be made instead of everybody trying to do a bunch of little things. We really need to reach that compromise. Um, does anybody else have any other final thoughts? I don't personally agree with the extreme measures 
uh, in Hickel's degrowth theory, but I do believe that there does need to be drastic levels of economic change in order to stop climate change. And I do believe that the solution won't be found by pure capitalism or socialism. It'll be found in a balance and a compromise of both. So in my opinion, degrowth and Hickel's ideal world cannot be implemented in a capitalist economy. If we want to fix the environment, we need to draw ideas from other economical structures like communism and socialism. If our economic system can evolve, then degrowth may be plausible. I think convincing and practical solutions are definitely possible to combat economic growth and its environmental impacts. Um, people in the scientific community from for various disciplines can come up with solutions that result in this decoupling of our economy. But these also need to be made public so citizens can be active in discussion and knowledgeable about the, the topic and the solutions being proposed. And they should be able to um, be available for policymakers as well so they can implement effective climate actions in their policymaking. I love what everyone's had to say. And I I do think that blaming capitalism by itself or blaming the rich is kind of too easy of a statement to make. Largely, I think the problem is a lack of social and cultural forces that enforce finding some sort of higher meaning or purpose in your life beyond just self-indulgence and material gluttony. As Haley was talking about, the sense of collective in this country and really in a lot of Western countries has completely collapsed over the last five years. You can see that in 2016, definitely saw it in 2020 as we live through that, but it also goes to Western Europe like Brexit, the rise of Marie Le Pen in France, et cetera, et cetera. We inevitably reap the repercussions of this lack of moral selflessness and dedication to each other. And if we can't even do that, the environment is completely out of play. Certainly, I believe we can come together to improve our capitalist economy as you were talking about, Robbie by drawing on the best parts of traveling to the heart and degrowth, it's really a matter of reprioritizing what really matters, our environment. And if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that we crave social interaction and the outdoors, and we should work on preserving those parts of our life. Um, I would just like to end our conversation today with an inspirational quote. Um, uh, from Mahatma Gandhi that states, Earth provides enough to satisfy every man's need, but not every man's greed. Thank you. This project has been generously supported by UNC Chapel Hill's Office for the Vice Provost for Global Affairs and the Chancellor's Global Education Fund through a collaborative online learning grant, as well as the Digital Humanities Lab in the Department of English and Comparative Literature.